<laughs> Welcome back. Uh, we once again have Caitlin joining us. Hello. So we've got quite the interesting podcast episode for you guys. It is once again all about Moida. Um, so we will start out with names and pronouns as per usual. <laughs> Um, I'm Luca. I use he, they, or whatever pronouns, except for she, her. <laughs> I'm Kaylee. I use she, her, they, them, whatever. Don't really care. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I use uh, she, her, and she, they. She, them. She, they, them. She, they. <laughs> <laughs> um, excuse the chaos today. Um... So I guess we'll just dive right in, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so Caitlin, uh, go ahead and tell us about your Moida. Okay, so uh, we're doing hometown homicides. Um, and so this case is a little, is pretty close to home. Uh, it's in Salisbury, Maryland, about 45 minutes away from where I live. And it also was a family member of one of my close friends that this case is about so yeah and then uh trigger warning it does involve a child and mentions of sexual abuse rape and assault so just putting that there for anyone who needs it and i want to i'm going to just say my sources before i start Um, a lot of the information i got came from true crime daily they had a great article on it plus it was like a five-part video Thing they had along with it, uh, the Baltimore Sun, uh, WBOC, uh, the Maryland Judiciary Case Search, and Morbid, a true crime podcast. So, all right, I'm gonna get into it. So, who is Sarah Haley Foxwell? Sarah Haley Foxwell, who was also known as Haley Bug to many of her friends and family, was born on May 18, 1998. Her mother, Jennifer Foxwell, said. She comes from a family of nine children, and she was right there, smack in the middle. And she was the one that was the referee, the lover, the hugger, the one that always had a smile. No matter how bad her day was, she always had a smile. So, like I said, this case happened in Salisbury, Maryland. Um, uh, It happened in the middle of the night on December 22nd, 2009. Sarah and her eight other siblings were staying at their Aunt Amy's and grandfather's house because their mother had been struggling being a single mother, trying to make money and like even just make ends meet. And it was just a few days before Christmas. She was just trying to pick up a few extra hours so she can get some more money so the kids could have a good Christmas. So it was around 9 p.m. on December 22nd when Sarah and her six-year-old sister, Emma, were holding hands while they skipped down the long hallway to their room. Uh, Her Aunt Amy recounts that she just, that's, one of the vivid memories she has from that night is that those two were holding each other's hand just skipping down the hall to their room ready for bed like getting excited for Christmas like in their Christmas jammies um but this room happened to be right next to the back door the next morning December 23rd around 7 a.m Amy could not find Sarah anywhere She was not in her room with Emma. She was not anywhere inside the house and her coat and shoes were still in the house. So she had gone outside. She really wasn't making it far because it had snowed that 
night prior. Um, so uh, Amy had called her sister Jennifer, Sarah's mother, saying Sarah's not in her room. Her shoes are here. Her jacket's here. She's not in the house. She's not outside the house. We don't know where she is at. So then the family immediately called the Wicomico County Sheriff's Department and the County Sheriff Mike Lewis and Sergeant David Owens and the entire staff of the Sheriff's Department went to the house immediately. Once the Sheriff's Department was at the house, they began searching inside and out, finding no signs of forced entry. And while searching, they were checking all the doors and windows to see if like they were locked or not and whatnot. And once they got to the back door, it had opened right away. Amy knew that she locked the door though. She had recalled before she went to bed, going through and checking all the doors and windows in the house, making sure they were locked and secured. Um, and then Amy had remembered that there was a spare key outside that was, I believe it was under a flower pot. And she went in, she went to go see if the spare key was there and it was not. Uh, while searching the house, they did find that the only belonging of Sarah's that had gone missing was her green toothbrush. Um, so after they had found that the toothbrush was gone and the spare key was gone and there was a dog in the house. So, and the dog hadn't alerted to anyone being in the house. Uh, they knew that she had to have been abducted and been abducted by someone that was familiar with the house and the family. Um, after they figured that out, they alerted and or they issued an Amber Alert. And after issuing the Amber Alert, Amber Alert in a statement uh, Sheriff Mike Lewis gave, he was encouraging the community to go and check their own properties. And if they hadn't found anything, they were, to, they were told to tie a yellow ribbon on their mailbox. And I'm not sure when I was, in some of the articles, it was saying like, right after they were like searched that house's property and like that day like on the 23rd and then some of them were saying like on the 25th on christmas i'm not quite sure which day they went and did the search or when um they did the yellow ribbons but after lewis had given the statement um he went into a helicopter to like look in the air and he just saw the community was covered in yellow ribbons. Um, so as it became more known that Sarah was missing, many people came from all around to help. There were even people who came from North and South Dakota and they had special dogs brought in to help with the search as well. Um, and then eventually at some point, little six-year-old Emma had gone over to her grandmother because at this point in time, all the family members had gathered at the house uh, she went over to her grandmother and tugged on her nightgown and whispered to her that she had a secret. Um, Emma goes on to tell the grandmother that she knows who took Sarah and that she had been awake and heard everything that had happened the, that night. I believe this is on the 23rd, so the night before. Um, Emma had been scared and was pretending to be asleep, so she was able to hear everything. And she told her grandmother that it was Mr. Tommy that took Sarah. Now, Mr. Tommy, 
So Mr. Tommy was Thomas Legs, who had previously been dating their aunt Amy, who, and their relationship had ended like very recently prior to this all happening. And um, they, the uh, authorities had believed that during that relationship with her aunt that he had taking, taken interest in Sarah. Um, so again, I'm going to put in uh, another trigger warning right here just because I'm going to start talking about some of the many things that Mr. Thomas Legs has done. So in 1997, he was convicted of third degree sexual offense that involved a 12 year old girl. He was 18 at the time. In 2000, he was convicted on second degree assault for inappropriately touching a girl that was under the age of 14. 2004, charged with sexual offense of third and fourth degree as well as second degree assault. 2009, this one was only three months before he, the abduction of Sarah. He was charged for burglary of the fourth degree and destruction of property with a value of $500 or more. And somewhere in there also, I'm not quite sure if the burglary and this were the same thing, but he also at some point had broken into a woman's house and was standing over her bed naked, performing things while she slept. Uh, she woke up and saw him, and I believe she did press charges. Um, in February of 2010, he was found guilty of the burglar burglary, fourth degree, and was sentenced to three years in jail for that offense. Mm, wait, no, I think that might be incorrect. I don't think it was 2010. Um, so um, here's like a little like uh, a little excerpt from Baltimore Sun. Um, but according to Baltimore Sun from 1997 to 2009, Legs had been charged with at least six crimes that had been committed against girls and young women, including raping a teenager on the Delaware board boardwalk and grabbing a 13-year-old the same day that his newborn child was born and brought home from the hospital. Uh, there is a lot more information about all of those things in the Baltimore Sun article. I'm not going to continue on with those. Um, but basically, Thomas Legs is a piece of shit. Um, so. Sounds like it. He <laughs> really is. So um, I believe now it is. So getting back into the timeline, we're on December 24th, Christmas Eve. Uh, this is when deputies had tracked Legs down and took him in for questioning. So I'm going to read an excerpt from True Crime Daily. It's a little long but we're gonna get through it. <laughs> uh, frantic deputies tracked down legs to a shed where he lived on his parents' property. Uh, we searched the shed, said Sergeant Owens. It was full of pornographic magazines and pornographic videos. It just makes your skin crawl. There's no sight of Sarah, but based on the six-year-old's positive identification, sheriff deputies haul legs in for questioning. For the next several hours, they interrogate him. Denial, 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 said Owens. We all seem to get along great legs said in the re recorded interrogation i try to be very cautious around the younger girls because of my past and everything else just so there's no mistakes i don't be alone with them or anything like that and with and which if you talk to amy she should be able to confirm that i was never alone with them whenever we were together when asked why emma would 
point the finger at him, Legs claims the six-year-old was a troublemaker. Amy said that she was a little handful and stuff, and she said a couple of things she'd done, Legs says in, in the interrogation. She'd do little odd things. I knew within minutes that they had definitely committed the crime, said Sheriff Lewis. The way he snickered and smiled at my detectives, it was clear that he thought he had committed the perfect crime. There's just one problem. Legs tells detectives that he has an ironclad alibi. Police verify Legs was indeed with a friend at a local bar, but there's a gaping hole in his story. No one, including his parents, can confirm his whereabouts between 1 and 7 o'clock that morning on the, uh, technically the 20, the 23rd. Uh, we had our man. We were just going to have to prove it, said Mike Sheriff Lewis. And then they were about to, or, and they were about to. Proof was in Legs' gold pickup truck. Right there on the floorboard was Sarah's green toothbrush. Once they had saw the toothbrush, there was no doubt the authorities had the right man, but there was still no sign of Sarah. The cops started going through cell phone. Oh, oh I'm back into what I had written. The excerpt's over. Um, the cops started going through the cell phone records to see if they could pinpoint where Legs had been the night of her abduction. Eventually, they found that his phone pinged off of three different towers, which allowed the authorities to triangulate where those, uh, where the three towers intersected and where they believe Sarah to be. Next day, Christmas Day, the local baseball stadium, Purdue Stadium, had become the command post for the 3,000 3,000 civilian. So this is 3,000 ordinary people that went to go help with this search of this little girl. As they uh, fucking should. Like, yeah, to be no, honest. Like, like, that's really cool that that many people even, like, cared. Like, I know nowadays right. we're really desensitized to that kind of stuff. Right. It, it's just crazy the amount of people that put in the effort. And I, like, thought it was astonishing that there were even people that came from the Dakotas yeah but so there are three thousand people they had to put them in purdue stadium um and it was not only police but the entire community plus more um it literally took my breath away said sarah's mother jennifer they didn't care that it was freezing they didn't care that they had that they had christmas with their families but unfortunately even though everyone was hoping and praying that there was going to be a christmas miracle there was not one um, Sarah was found at approximately 4 p.m. on Friday, December 25th, about half a mile from the Maryland-Delaware state line. Legs had sexually assaulted her, choked her, tried to drown her in a mud puddle. Uh, there was debris found in her lungs. Um, he had broke her legs by running them over in his vehicle, doing this to make sure she could not get away while he went to get gasoline. And he came back and he poured the gasoline on her and lit her on fire, at which point she was still alive, according to the autopsy, because there was smoke inhalation in her lungs. Thomas Legs was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Sarah Foxwell. His charges, according to the Maryland case search, include first degree, murder first degree, guilty, burglary first degree, guilty, burglary third degree, guilty, kidnapping, guilty, kidnapping child under 16, guilty, sexual offense first degree, guilty, sexual offense second degree, guilty. He was given two consecutive life sentences without possibility of parole, 
for the first degree murder and the first degree sexual offense with an added 20 years for burglary and 30 years for kidnapping. Now, I do believe the burglary was part of a different case, but they just kind of merged it all into one. Um, he had been eligible for the death penalty, but he ended up taking a plea deal. And the only way for them to have been able to get have the chance to get the death penalty was to have little Emma testify over and over, making her way through the courts. And the family did not want her to have to go through that, which I wouldn't want her to either. I also think this man deserves to like rot in prison. So um, once he, deserves he to was sit there and be abused by the other inmates and suffer. <laughs> once Lex was in prison, he almost immediately been attacked by a fellow inmate while he was eating in the dining hall. He had been slashed with a homemade weapon on his face, neck, and hands. As he should. As he should. So, and I also believe um, this was this part is not in the articles. This is what I heard from my friend, but a guard also beat the shit out of him too. Good. As they should. We stand that behavior. <laughs> also, so um, I may not get all of this right, but it, so in my opinion, I think Legs was just trying to get back at the ant. I don't think it was a fascination for. I mean, I'm sure he did have a fascination in Sarah, but I believe it was more so to get back at the ant for yeah, it sounds like it. Especially um, because it was so was, close. How old was Sarah? Uh, she was 11. Okay. And then um, I also, it said that he was at the bar that night. He was at the bar. He was, um, and Amy actually was also at the bar that night and some of the other family members or family and some friends were there. And I think, I don't know, Amy had done something at the bar that pissed him off. And mm -hmm. I think that's what set it all off. Yeah. I'm just curious. It's the way you explained it. It sounded like she knew that he had those offenses on him beforehand. Um, and that, that's why, like, because he said, you said that he said that they were never, he wasn't alone due to with them yes previous conviction. so he had basically chalked it up to amy that it was like something like very minor for why he, um, he was on the um the the, the registry. registry yeah yeah and he, so just he was like, probably just kind of like oh well i was just dating a 17 year old when i was 18 yeah something like something like that to make like it sound him. like not that big of a deal because yeah. I thought that you had said that, like, at least his first one or two were when he was, like, relatively younger, like, in his early 20s, at least, right? Yeah, the first one, it was 97, and he was 18. Okay. Yeah, so he probably was, like, oh, yeah, like, that was my was girlfriend. We'd been ago. together for years, and then, like, we right. broke up, and she did Well, no, she was 12, so okay. well, it wasn't that. I think he probably... Okay. I think I what I heard was that he had said something like I was caught peeing in public or something and like oh. for like whatever I don't know something dumb yeah and then like and when I was researching this I was talking shit to the about the aunt for like allowing him in their lives knowing he was on the registry but 
he just chalked it up to not being that big of a deal like to be yeah, that's what i was minor. curious about because i was gonna say why would she be with him if she knew but that makes sense because most mothers if not all of them most of them wouldn't even like risk that right but if it was uh if he manipulated her then that makes sense yeah which it sounds like that's all he did <laughs> yeah yeah people like him are good at at manipulation yeah i'll also like never understand why someone would be into like a 12 year old or 11 year old um as even like especially like kids younger than that like i don't understand like there's nothing sexual about them they are just little kids they have the difference between us and them yeah i i just can't even imagine like that disgusting (laughs) i wouldn't even want to date an 18 year old like as a a 21 year old i don't want to date an 18 year old like (laughs) yeah yeah no i i could never understand it like even when i was you know 16 i didn't want to date anyone younger than me right or like a 17 year old dating a 14 year old or something like that that's weird it's one thing when you're like older in your 20s and you're like say you're like 21 you're dating a 30 year old or something like that like the age doesn't really make a difference at that point it makes slight difference but it's not yeah no like as you get older the age difference between becomes less and less like right because my mom's like 40 something and her husband um I want to say he's in his like 60s or 70s so like he's not like late 70s if he's in his 70s but like that age difference sounds weird to me but like when I think about it like they're both like older so like it doesn't really matter right okay so now time for my story (laughs) so mine is a recent-ish case um so today we're going to be talking about um richmond virginia's south side strangler um this was a pretty monumental case uh this was the first case where someone was convicted based on dna evidence and richmond is about a two-hour drive from where i currently live and i lived in richmond for a while so it's kind of weird to me to like hear about this um so we're going to be taking it back to 1987 today um so in 1987 richmond virginia's south side district was a very nice and quiet place to live at the time it was where the more affluent families lived and the city was very divided between those who had money and those who didn't now it's still divided, but it's not as big of a divide. Um, so there wasn't much crime in the area at the time. Um, most crime that took place in Richmond was gang-related activity, and it was in the more less traveled parts of the city. Um, and you know, it remained this way until September of 1987. Arnold Ellis lived in an apartment on Forest Hill Avenue in the South Side District of Richmond. He worked as a mechanic, and one night he had been working late, and he didn't come home until around 1 a.m. 
When he got home, he noticed a Renault Alliance parked outside his building that he had never seen before. He didn't think much of it, and he just went inside and went to bed. Next morning, he woke up, he woke up at around 10 a.m., and he noticed that the car was still parked outside of his building. However, now that it was daylight, he was able to see a little bit more, and he noticed something that seemed a little odd to him. Um, the car was running, and the driver was nowhere to be found. So he just kind of assumed that someone had abandoned their car, um, and so he called the police to come and take care of it, and so an officer came out and started, you know, investigating. He um, figured out that the car was registered to 35-year-old Debbie Dudley Davis, who lived on the next street over just a few blocks down on Devonshire Street. He drove to her apartment and knocked on the door, but there wasn't an answer. An elderly neighbor came out to see what was going on, and for whatever reason, I honestly have no idea why, but she had a key to Debbie's apartment. Um, so she let the officer in and he went in to check it out, but he was not prepared for what he was about to find. The neighbor had a key? Yeah. Oh, well, I don't think it was probably just like if she was gone, if she had pets or plants or something like that. Because like, I know my aunt, she's given like the neighbors on both sides of her each have a key, but I mean, she knows them pretty well. So it sounds pretty normal. Uh, but inside the apartment was the body of 35-year-old Debbie Davis laying face down dead on her mattress. Um, so now I just want to tell you a little bit about who Debbie was. Debbie Ann Dudley was born on July 15, 1952 to William and Josephine Dudley near Lynchburg, Virginia. She was a bright and happy child. She was so full of light and life. Um, she was her parents' only child, so she was their whole world. She grew up really close with her cousin because, like I said, she was an only child. So, of course, her cousin was her best friend. They were just like sisters. And then um, when she was um so when she was six months old her parents had actually moved into the house that they would end up having for the rest of debbie's life um and since her passing um they have hung pictures of her paintings that they've commissioned of her uh her needlepoint um is on the walls and there was actually um a needlepoint that she had made to give to her parents for Christmas, the year that she had died. But she had, of course, never gotten to give it to them. But they have it hanging on her wall anyway, on their wall anyways. Um, so anyway. Oh, so the, this is in the parents' house? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, this is after she died. They like really memorialized her and they really just want to keep her memory alive. Um, but back to, you know, Debbie's life and her upbringing. Um, shortly after she graduated high school, Debbie was briefly married and then divorced, which is how her last name changed to Dudley, or how it changed to Davis, because her name was Debbie Ann Dudley Davis. Um, so after she got divorced, she decided to move over to Richmond and live closer to her cousin, Judy, who, like I said, she grew up with and was her best friend. Um, 
Debbie moved into a condo on Devonshire Street in the Westover Hills neighborhood, only two blocks away from where her cousin lived with her husband and their two young sons. Um, their kids called Debbie um, Aunt Debbie. And I just thought that was so cute because they were just so close. They were like sisters. Um, and then this is a quote and it says, the thing I remember the most about Debbie was her laugh. She had such a great laugh, says Eric Fisk. Um, that was her cousin's husband. He said, also, I loved her honesty. Judy said, she didn't pull any punches. If your dress was ugly, it was just ugly. Um, Debbie at one point um, was an extra in a Mary Tyler Moore movie on HBO titled Finnegan Begin Again. Uh, she loved to read mainly mystery novels and she worked at Style Weekly as the accounts manager. And then on top of that, she had a part-time job at Walden Bookstore in the Cloverleaf Mall in Chesterfield about 10 minutes away from her apartment. Um, the night before she was murdered, Debbie and a co-worker named Deanna Landis Hauf went on a road trip to Virginia Beach, just a few hours away, and they were going to go see a performance by Dana Carvey, who was a Saturday Night Live star known for his church lady character. They decided to stop for dinner before the show, but the two of them had really wanted to walk on the beach before they left. And since they were running out of time, they just threw their money on the table and went to go walk in the sand. Um, her friend Deanna said that she recalled that the restaurant staff were irritated that they had just like thrown their money on the table and just like left. Um, but she said that she was really glad that they had gotten to walk in the sand considering what was gonna happen to Debbie. They went to the show after they finished walking on the beach and then Deanna dropped Debbie off at her apartment and she waited in the driveway to watch to make sure that Debbie made it safely inside. And once she saw that she had, she drove away. Debbie hadn't been feeling well recently. She had even been to the emergency room for abdominal pain and she had also talked to her parents about getting her gallbladder removed in Lynchburg back home so she could recover with her parents. However, she would never get to have that surgery. Um, all of what I'm about to say is just a theorized version of events that the police have put together based on the evidence at the scene. So they believe that the killer was waiting inside Debbie's apartment for her to return home. They believe that he had hid in one of the closets and then when she went to brush her teeth at night, she had put her glasses on the table and she was in the hallway and he grabbed her. And so, you know, the next morning, Debbie's been found. We're back in the timeline of the case. Um, she was found face down with her head slightly hanging off the edge of her bed. Her right arm was tied behind her back and her left arm had been tied beneath her with a pair of bootlaces. And the way that like the knot like was tied, it made it so if you tugged on like one arm, it would tighten the knot even more. Um, and she had two socks wrapped around her neck and then a 16 inch extension piece for a vacuum cleaner twisted in the knot like a garage. Um, she was topless, but she had on her jean shorts and uh, 
just like a little bit of a trigger warning real quick because this really got me um emotional as fuck um her eyes were found open uh when they found her body and they were bloodshot and the um like the they were like red and like had been dotted red from the blood vessels bursting during stroke like prolonged strangulation um she what he believed is that he strangled her until she passed out and then would let go and let her regain consciousness and then strangle her again and then continuously repeat the process um they found in her autopsy that she had been sexually assaulted um but like i said she was wearing her shorts when they found her so he had raped her and then redressed her but only her shorts um they also found a bunch of semen stains all around the um all around her body that were completely uncontaminated which um led police to believe that he had been masturbating while he had been strangling her Um, yeah i was gonna say it sounded like it was probably a kink thing for him if he was like letting her uh wake back up and then do it again yeah so they believe that he was masturbating while he was strangling her and reviving her and doing all of that um I think in one of the documentaries, they said that it was probably around like 20 minutes of this torture that he put her through um, before he eventually killed her. Um, They weren't able to find any fingerprints or anything like that around her apartment. Um, Everything was in complete order except for her room where she was found. And, you know, DNA wasn't much, it wasn't really advanced at this time. So they couldn't do much with the semen, but they did, you know, test it and bring it back and everything. They were trying so hard for so long to find any kind of leads. They talked to her family, they talked to her friends, her coworkers, but she had no enemies. She wasn't dating anyone at the time. She hadn't spoken to her ex-husband in years. She didn't do drugs. She didn't go out to bars. She wasn't a sex worker. And she was all around a kind, quiet woman who lived in her apartment alone with her two cats. Um, At first, they thought that her killer was someone that had something against Style Weekly, the magazine that she worked at, or that they were intentionally trying to target the publisher, but had somehow gotten Debbie instead. So the police guarded the um, Style Weekly's publisher and she put up a $10,000 reward for any information that would lead to the killer's capture and conviction. And she also um, would be the one to deliver the eulogy at Debbie's funeral. As the police began to find less and less, the case began to to go cold until there was another murder. Um, At around 1.45 a.m. on Saturday, October 3rd, 1987, Marcel Slag arrived home at the house that he shared with his wife, Dr. Susan Hellman. She was a neurosurgery resident at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University's Medical College of Virginia. 
She often worked late hours. However, she told him that she was going to be home tonight. And so when he got home and he heard movement upstairs, he was like, oh, shit, you know, like I woke her up. And so he very quietly crept himself to the bathroom and decided to just take a quick shower before joining her in bed. Took his shower and he went into the bedroom and there in the dim light that was provided from the streetlight in the alleyway, he saw the partially nude body of his wife laying halfway out of her closet. Around her neck, she had a a red leather woman's belt tied tightly. A second black belt was tethered to it like a dog leash, which the murderer had used to strangle her. Her nose and mouth were covered in fresh blood and her skin was still warm to the touch. Her hands had been bound behind her back tightly with an extension cord and a woman's necktie. Her skirt had been hiked up over her waist and she was still wearing both of her socks and only one of her shoes. She once again had been strangled slowly over the period of time. uh, He had felt like a light breeze um, indicating that his uh, bedroom window was open. Her home was just less than a mile from where Debbie Davis had been murdered in her home just two weeks before. Once again, there was no fingerprints left or anything that could identify the killer other than more semen stains found around her body. However, just outside on their balcony, they found a Vaseline jar that the killer had left behind. They traced it to a store nearby um, that was nearby the Cloverleaf Mall. Um, it And this this was really heartbreaking to read, but police believe that when he got home that night the noise that he heard upstairs was the killer um still inside the home and that he had startled him and that at that point his wife was probably already dead but it's terrifying and heartbreaking to think that this man came home and thought he heard his wife, but he was hearing her murderer and he had no idea. Um, they would later find in the investigation that Dr. Susan Helms had actually bought books from the bookstore where Debbie Davis had worked and they found a check written by Susan that was cashed by Debbie. So the two of them were sort of loosely connected. Um, The police once again hit a dead end with anything that they had, no suspects, no concrete evidence. And it was at this point that they turned to the FBI to see if they could get a potential profile. They believed they were looking for a white male around 30 years old, a loner who didn't really have any friends. However, they still couldn't catch him. And then, this would prove to be fatal because Diane Cho, a 15-year-old high school student, had been telling her friend Jenny Han about a recurring nightmare she had been having that someone had been following her. She lived in the Chesterfield Apartments right near the Midlothian Turnpike across from the, uh, across from the Cloverleaf Mall. Another one of Diane's friends recalls that Diane had been telling her for weeks that she had seen this man following her and that she had gone to the mall and seen him. In November of 1987, Diane was at a theater with her friend Desiree Fiores going to see The Princess Bride. 
when she reportedly began trembling in fear and pointed out her stalker, who was apparently staring at them from the parking lot. Desiree recalled that his eyes were hollow. She said it was the coldest look she had seen in her life. On Saturday, November 21st, Diane's parents got home at around 9 p.m. Diane's mom gave her a haircut, and when her mom went to bed around midnight, she could hear Diane typing her English paper in her room across the hall. The next day at around 2 p.m., her parents called the house to remind the kids to get ready for their afternoon church service. Diane's 12-year-old brother, Roman, had answered the phone and told his mom that Diane was still asleep and that he didn't want to wake her up and make her angry. So about an hour later, their parents came home and Diane's mom went straight to her room to wake her up. As soon as she opened the door, all she could do was let out a horrifying scream. She said, my daughter was wrapped in rope. Her face was purple and the window was open. They knew at this point that it was too late to save her, so they called 911 to send out police to investigate. Once again, the police couldn't find anything that would help them further identify a killer. However, what was extremely chilling for police is that Diane had been killed the night before while her entire family slept in the same home. She was raped and tortured and murdered in her room just feet away from her family. In late November 1987, Audrey Sizelove was concerned because she hadn't been able to reach her neighbor, Sue Tucker, and had noticed that her bedroom window had been open for days and it had been freezing outside. She tried to get into the house and as she was, and as she was like trying to get in, she smelled an odor that she described as smelling like rotting flesh. She called the police and they arrived to find Sue Tucker's badly decomposing body laid out across her bed, bound in nylon ropes, and she had once again been strangled. No fingerprints had been left at the scene once again. The police figured that the killer had broken in through a basement laundry room window, and before he had left, he decided to make himself a snack. So he had a half an orange and then just left the other half laying on the table and left. After he murders right, right, he <laughs> murders her. Like that's real he, fucking cocky. Like mm, snack. That made me a little hungry. <laughs> right, that's a lot of work. Half an orange. <laughs> right, let me have that. Um, while they were looking around, the phone began to ring inside the house. It was whose it was Sue's husband, Reg Tucker, who had been calling the home for days, concerned about his wife. At one point, he had called, and a man had answered the phone and then immediately hung up on him. This time, however, when he called, an officer answered the phone, and his stomach just dropped. The officer was like, you know, you should take a seat, but he didn't need to. He said that he already knew. Why? If he had been calling for multiple days and she wasn't answering, you'd think he would have gone home. Well, okay, so here's the thing. He lit. Okay, so they were in the process of moving to Wales. He was originally from Wales and he had recently gotten a job there. And so he was already over in Wales and then she okay. was going to be joining him soon. Okay. And he actually said that the driving factor for them moving to Wales was the rate of crime in the United States. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, police are looking into this and 
like I said, so this was this took place in Arlington, not in Richmond. Arlington is closer to Washington, D.C. Um, so at this point, they're not connecting anything to the cases in Richmond. But they decided to look at cases in Arlington because this seemed very similar to a case that had taken place earlier in 1984. So we're going back three years prior. So Carolyn Hamm was a 32-year-old attorney. It was Wednesday, January 25th, 1984, and for the second day in a row, she hadn't shown up for work and had missed several appointments, which was incredibly out of character for her. She was an incredibly hardworking woman, and her secretary was concerned. So her secretary called her best friend, Darla Henry, and asked her to go and check on Carolyn. She wasn't too concerned because she had just seen Carolyn literally two nights before, and they had gone to the Capitol Hill Squash Club. Carolyn at the time was um, going to be flying to Peru the next weekend, and Darla just thought that she was caught up in some errands, but she decided to go and check on her anyways, you know, just in case. So when she got to Carolyn's house, her blue Plymouth was still in the driveway, and her front door was cracked open, which had allowed snow to spill into the hallway. This concerned her, so she searched her home where she found Carolyn's nude, strangled body face down on the floor of her garage, near, and nearby one of the laundry room windows was open. They found no fingerprints, and apparently um, when Darla had gone to check on Carolyn, she had brought one of like the young neighborhood boys with her to, like I guess, help her. Um, and so the police started like looking at him and accusing him. Um, so when they called asking for his, um, DNA and like blood samples and stuff, his sister pointed police in a new direction and she pointed them towards a neighborhood man that was named David Vasquez. According to her, Carolyn had complained to her about him peeping on her while she had been sunbathing. Um, she had even told police that she saw David Vasquez leaving Carolyn's house two nights before her body had been found. However, there was a few issues with this theory. Number one being that David Vasquez at the time um, was believed to function at a mental level of a 10-year-old. Um, not only that, but seven months prior, he and his mother had moved 25 miles away to live in Manassas, and neither one of them could drive. So, how is it that this man with the mental level of a 10-year-old can get 25 miles away right. without a car? Yeah. Despite this, police interviewed him, and while they were interviewing him, they threw in some lies. They told him that they had found his fingerprints at the scene, and they spent several hours interrogating him, dropping details of the murder, to which he ended up confessing on multiple times by just repeating the information back to police that they had given him. So police, you know, obviously this is a shitty confession, but police didn't care. They just took it and they convicted him anyways. Except, okay, well, they tried him anyways. His lawyer ended up convincing him to enter into an Alford plea. If you guys don't know what an Alford plea is, basically it's when someone says, I recognize that you have enough evidence to convict me, but you're not admitting guilt. You're saying like, 
I'm not saying I'm guilty. I'm just saying that you have enough evidence to convict me of being guilty. And so for this, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison. So back to the timeline, um, police in Arlington, you know, they find a body in 1987, very similar to a case that they had from 1984. They decide to go and question David Vasquez again because they had always suspected that he had had an accomplice and they wanted to see what information they could get out of him. However, of course, this man knew absolutely nothing because he had never done anything. So now they're starting to sit there and think, maybe David Vasquez was never guilty in the first place. (laughs) Right. This is why I don't be standing police officers. um, And here's the thing. Here is the kicker. So they had found um, semen samples at Carolyn Ham's murder in 1984, and they had tested them. Mm -hmm. They found, when they tested those back in 1984, that the blood type of the person that those had come from was not the same blood type as David Vasquez. What the fuck? How does that make sense? So, so because they were lazy and decided to convict someone that was clearly not wrong, like in the wrong, um, multiple other women got murdered because of the incompetence of these police officers. Pretty much. Because it gets better. You'll, you'll see. It gets better. Yeah. So, um, you know, the sample is now too degraded for them to be able to test it. Um, So now they've realized that the man in prison for murdering this woman is very likely innocent. They start to look at other leads. Um, And so um, in Arlington around this time, there had been this man known as the Black Masked Rapist. And he was waiting in women's homes for them to come home with this rope and he would tie them up and he would rape them and then he would leave. The detectives on Sue's case called the FBI, and the FBI agreed that it sounded like the black masked rapist was their killer. And so they start sitting there thinking, okay, well, who could this black masked rapist be? And they um, had seen in one of the rapes that the rapist had taken the girl from where he abducted her to another area and it was theorized by detectives that he lived near the second location because then it was easier for him to go there because it was somewhere he was familiar with so they started to look into criminals that had committed burglaries in the past and lived in that area and one name stuck out to them that was timothy spencer timothy spencer was born in 1962 in a lower income neighborhood surrounded by hardworking people His parents both had jobs, and at some point they divorced, but not before having Timothy and then his little brother, Travis. Since Timothy was Travis's older brother, he looked out for him. He took care of him, and Travis even said that he had this memory of getting this bike for Christmas, and Timothy took him out into the street, and he took the training wheels off, and he rode him around, and he held onto the back of his seat, and... At one point, he looked at his brother and he actually like smacked like into a pole or something. And his brother was like, well, don't look at me. Look at the road. 
And so like, they had like a really wonderful relationship. However, Timothy would get into a life of crime at a very young age. Um, He was quiet, but he stood out and people loved him because he was, they described him as beautiful and magnetic. He was incredibly attractive. And generally, if someone is incredibly attractive and they have some form of narcissism, if they don't get the attention that they crave, they start to act out. And so he struggled in school. And when he was 12 years old, he got in trouble for peeing and pooping in the main area of the school. Um, I had kids that did that in my middle, not middle school, in elementary school or like middle school all the time. And it was the weirdest thing ever. Like, I was like, why the fuck? Right. That is very odd. Yeah. Why do you feel the need to do this as a 12 year old? Right. Um, but he needed to have control, so he began terrorizing the neighborhood. Um, he would, like, break into homes and steal things and stuff like that. Um, his brother said, you know, if you told me he stole some hubcaps, I'd believe you. If you told me he stole your eyebrows, I'd believe you. Um, I was like, eyebrows? And then I said, oh no, they're eyebrows. They're stolen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Um, At one point, Travis stole some candy and he got in trouble. He thought when Timothy came home that he would be proud of him because he was going to be just like his brother. But Timothy actually got really mad at him and he was like, don't ever steal again. Like, don't be like me. Mm. Yeah, because he cared about his brother, right? He was like, yeah, you know, I want you to get in in no trouble. Just because I do it doesn't mean you can do it. Right. Do as Uh, I say, not as I do. Right. Uh, Timothy's crime only got worse as he got older. Um, so <laughs> after he committed that murder in 1984, yeah, he committed a burglary that actually landed him in prison until September of 1987. So if police had actually investigated a little bit more and maybe found him literally would have prevented everything else because he was already he already went to jail during this time right so they released him in september of 1987 and sent him to a halfway house um they didn't know at this point that he was violent whatsoever he hit it extremely well um he even got into a relationship with one of the women that worked at the halfway house and despite all of the rules that the halfway house had, he managed to still go out at night and roam the streets, even though he wasn't supposed to be able to. I wonder how that happened. Hmm. He was dating the lady working there. <laughs> yeah, so he got, away, he got away with a lot of stuff. Um, so back in the timeline, police are looking for leads and the name Tim- Timothy Spencer comes up. Um, the first crime had taken place just miles away from where he had grown up, and when they called and found that he was in a halfway house in Richmond, they also learned that the week that Sue Tucker had been murdered, he had taken leave to go home for Thanksgiving, so he would have been in Arlington at the time that she was murdered. Mm-hmm. So, of course, at this point, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, they decided to arrest him based on what they had and bring him in for questioning. 
Although at the time, all they had was circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. But with technology getting better, they decided to try and run a DNA test and see if they could get a match. And they ran his DNA against the samples that they had collected. And he came back as a match as for the semen samples in at least three of the murders that had taken place. They put him on trial for four of the murders committed. They weren't able to charge him with Carolyn Ham because it had been so long ago at this point. They didn't have the DNA evidence to um, like officially say that he had done it. But mm. since it was so similar and since the timeline made sense and everything like that, they were able to get David Vasquez acquitted for Carolyn Ham's murder. Um. During his trial, he didn't really, you know, seem to care all that much that he was on trial for murdering, you know, four women. Um, However, he was found guilty of all four of the recent murders, and he was sentenced to death four times, uh, one for each woman that he had killed. He was executed by electric chair on April 27th, 1994 at 11 p.m. Um, Debbie's parents, um, Debbie, uh, Debbie Davis's parents, uh, were asked if they were going to go and they said that they didn't need to go and see him get killed as long as they knew that he was dead. But they also, I believe, tried to sue the halfway house that, um, he had been staying in for negligence um i'm not sure how that ended up going though yeah so a list of his crimes um he was charged with larceny and setting fire to a school when he was nine he was charged with larceny again at age 11 and burglary at age 14 at 15 he was committed to a juvenile correctional center released on supervision the following year he was again arrested within eight months on burglary charges He was committed to the Beaumont Learning Center. One year after his release from that confinement, he was sentenced as an adult to five years in the Virginia State Penitentiary for another burglary. He was released on mandatory parole on December 14, 1981, after serving six months in prison. Within a month, he was arrested on three new charges. His parole was revoked and he was returned to custody. He was once again released on parole in May of 1983, but in January of 1984 was again arrested on two additional burglary charges. In 1986 and again in 1987, the parole board denied him parole because his recidivism indicated that he was an unacceptable 880 parole risk. His mandatory release was not to, date was not to be until 1991. And he was evaluated by psychologists while in custody and listed as a potential disciplinary and security problem. They characterized him as lazy, greedy, self-indulgent, directionless, uncooperative, and unreliable unless adequately supervised. So yeah, this is just another case um, where someone was continuously let in and out of prison and continuously the system failed to do its job yes the same thing was my story legs had been in and out of prison and no one like made um (laughs) like held him accountable 
I was talking to Luca earlier about a case that's kind of similar in that aspect. Um, and it's the case of Drew Shodine. Are you familiar with that one, Caitlin? No, I am not. So um, Drew Shodine's murder is the reason that we have a national public sex offender registry. Okay. Uh, because I her- do know that um, Sarah's case, it did help um, push Sarah's law in Maryland to help like something with sex offenders and making sure they do their time and that kind of stuff yeah um with drew shodin what had happened was it was a similar case he had been arrested and um let out multiple times he was even let out early from a 15 year sentence i think it was 15 year sentence for raping a girl he was let out on probation early and then within within a couple of months murdered drew shodin And so it was another instance where, you know, the system completely failed to do its job. Right. Yeah. The system is shit. Yeah. So we had very similar themes today. We did. It's crazy. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's, that's my case. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, if you want to follow us anywhere, um, our joint stuff is all, it's at Manic Panic Podcast on TikTok. It's at Manic Panic Pod on Twitter. Um, we have a card website, which will be linked in the bio um, or the description. It's called a description, not a bio. It is called a description. We will have our email down there as well, which is manicpanicpodcast123 at gmail.com. And if you have any like suggestions or requests for topics, it doesn't have to be true crime related. It can be true crime related. Literally anything anything you want us to talk about. We just have been finding true crime to be the most intriguing at the moment. (laughs) Um, Like I'm thinking, we're thinking about like mythology, we're thinking about um folklore which is similar but not the same thing um we're thinking about um i don't know there was a bunch of things that we we had like on our little list of things that we want to do but if anybody has any suggestions let us know Mm -hmm. um and me back for more episodes let them know i will come back (laughs) (laughs) we would love to have caitlin come back i'm thinking about maybe doing an episode where we interview streamers so like you leo um like a, maybe some other streamers or whatever or like cosplayers or something Anthony something fun Anthony. like that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you can find us anywhere um apple music spotify or not apple music apple podcast spotify anchor youtube obviously you know all of the places um you can find us there and then caitlin plug your socials oh okay my socials um all right i do stream on twitch uh, my Twitch is uh, twitch.tv.tv slash cat underscore baggins98. My Twitch, Instagram, and Twitter are also at cat underscore baggins98. My regular socials, my Twitter is at thecatsmeow2298. And my Instagram is at cat underscore baggins. No 98 on that one. 
we did we did um set up a twitch account and we're thinking mm-hmm. about doing something with that maybe oh that would be fun yeah not sure what but hey any recommendations um we could totally just go on there and play cool math games <laughs> <laughs> oh speaking of i just got my capture card Ooh. so catch me playing yeah well i also have stardew on my computer now so oh okay but you can catch me playing fallout shelter (laughs) paper mario i would love to play animal crossing animal crossing i gotta get a capture card at some point so i can play we can play stardew together on our save because like my save is fine and all on mine but i like our shared save uh, me too i but i need you to come on and um get on my 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 main save that you came on so i could just show you i need you to get on there with me so i can get that uh elf or the dwarf scroll from you because i need that um no you cannot have my dwarf scroll i don't know what i well, i needed to donate to the museum so i know what these dwarves are saying <laughs> no i want to understand them no <laughs> oh no our dwarves they're broken <laughs> oh no the translation it's broken <laughs> so yeah i guess goodbye <laughs> goodbye <laughs> goodbye <Bye. Bye. laughs>